So by way of introduction, I thought that because it's Memorial Day that and given that almost everything is closed, including most media outlets, actually, it's, it's a very it's been a very slow news week, given the given the uh, uh, holiday that I would offer instead a an essay on vows by G.K. Chesterton. It's called A Defense of Rash Vows, and I think even though it doesn't really touch on militarism or soldiers or those who give their lives up for their country in too much of a direct way, that it is still uh, pertinent and should, you know, help us reflect a little bit on what those who gave their lives for their country do or what they did when they took the vows to defend their country. Have a nice day. A Defense of Rash Vows by G.K. Chesterton The vow as a truly sane thing. If a prosperous modern man with a high hat and a frock coat were to solemnly pledge himself before all his clerks and friends to count the leaves on every third tree in Holland Walk, to hop up to the city on one leg every Thursday, to repeat the whole of Mill's Liberty 76 times, to collect 300 dandelions in fields belonging to anyone of the name of Brown, to remain for 31 hours holding his left ear in his right hand, to sing the names of all of his aunts in order of age on top of an omnibus, or make any such unusual undertaking, we should immediately conclude that the man was mad, or, as it is sometimes expressed, was an artist in life. Yet these vows are not more extraordinary than the vows which in the Middle Ages and in similar periods were made, not by fanatics merely, but by the greatest figures in civic and national civilization, by kings, judges, poets, and priests. One man swore to chain two mountains together, and the great chain hung there, it was said, for ages as a monument of that mystical folly. Another swore that he would find his way to Jerusalem with a patch over his eyes, and died looking for it. It is not easy to see that these two exploits, judged from a strictly rational standpoint, are any saner than the acts above suggested. A mountain is commonly a stationary and re reliable object, which it is not necessary to chain up at night, like a dog. And it is not as easy at first sight to see that a man pays a very high compliment to the holy city, but setting out for it under conditions which render it to the last degree improbable that he will ever get there. But about this there is one striking thing to be noticed. If men behaved in that way in our time, we should, as we have said, regard them as symbols of the decadence. But the men who did these things were not decadent. They belonged generally to the most robust class of what is generally regarded as a robust age. Again, it will be urged that if men, essentially sane, performed such insanities, it was under the capricious direction of a superstitious religious system. This, again, will not hold water, for in the purely terrestrial and even sensual departments of life, such as love and lust, Medieval princes show the same mad promises and performances, the same mishapped imagination, and the same monstrous self-sacrifice. Here we have a contradiction, to explain which it is necessary to think of the whole nature of vows from the beginning. And if we consider seriously and correctly the nature of vows, we shall, unless I am much mistaken, come to the conclusion that it is perfectly sane, and even sensible, to swear to chain mountains together, and that, if insanity is involved at all, it is a little insane not to do so. The man who makes a vow makes an appointment with himself at some distant time or place. The danger of it is that he should himself not keep the appointment. And in modern times, this terror of one's own self of the weakness 
and mutability of oneself has perilously increased, and is the real basis of the objection to vows of any kind. A modern man refrains from swearing to count the leaves on every third tree in Holland Walk, not because it is silly to do so, he does many sillier things, but because he has a profound conviction that before he got to the 379th leaf on the first tree, he would be excessively tired of the subject and want to go home to tea. In other words, we fear that by the time he will be, in the common but hideously significant phrase, another man. Now it is this horrible fairy tale of a man constantly changing into other men that is the soul of the decadence. That John Patterson should, with apparent calm, look forward to being a certain General Baker on Monday, Dr. McGregor on Tuesday, Sir Walton Carstair on Wednesday, and Sam Slug on Thursday. may seem a nightmare, but to that nightmare we give the name of modern culture. One great decadence, who is now dead, and published a poem some time ago in which he powerfully summed up the whole spirit of the movement by declaring that he could stand in the prison yard and entirely comprehend the feelings of a man about to be hanged. For he that lives more than lives than one, more deaths than one must die. And the end of all this is that maddening horror of unreality, which descends upon the decadence, and compared with which physical pain itself would have the freshness of a youthful thing. The one hell which imagination must conceive as most hellish is to be the eternally acting a play without even the narrowest and dirtiest green room in which to be human. And this is the condition of the decadent, of the aesthete, of the free lover, to be everlastingly passing through dangers which we know cannot scare us, to, ta to be taking oaths which we know cannot bind us, to defy enemies we know cannot conquer us. This is the grinning tyranny of decadence, which is called freedom. Let us turn, on the other hand, to the maker of vows. The man who made a vow, however wild, gave a healthy and natural expression to the greatness of a great moment. He vowed, for example, to chain two mountains together, perhaps a symbol of some great relief of love or aspiration. Short as the moment of his resolve might be, it was, like all great moments, a moment of immortality, and the desire to say of, a, of it, exegi monumentum ere perennius, was the only sentiment that would satisfy his mind. The modern aesthetic man would, of course, easily see the emotional opportunity. He would vow to chain two mountains together. But then he would, quite as cheerfully, vow to chain the earth to the moon. And the withering consciousness that he did not mean what he said, that he was, in truth, saying nothing of great import, would take from him exactly the sense of daring actuality, which is the excitement of a vow. The revolt against vows has been carried in our day even to the extent of a revolt against the typical vow of marriage. It is most amusing to listen to the opponents of marriage on this subject. They appear to imagine that the ideal of constancy was a yoke mysteriously imposed on mankind by the devil, instead of being, as it is, a yoke consistently imposed by all lovers on themselves. They have invented a phrase, a phrase that is a black and white contradiction in two words, free love, as if a lover ever had been, or ever could be, free. It is the nature of love to bind itself, and the institution of marriage merely paid the average man the compliment of taking him at his word. Modern sages offer to the lover, with an ill-favored grin, the largest liberties and the fullest irresponsibility. But they do not respect him as the old church respected him. They do not write his oath upon the heavens, as the record of his highest moment. They give him every liberty except the liberty to sell his liberty, which is the only one that he wants. It is exactly this back door, this sense of having a retreat behind us, that is, to our minds, the sterilizing spirit in modern pleasure. Everywhere there is the persistent and insane attempt to obtain pleasure without paying for it. Thus, in politics, the modern jingoes practically say, 
Let us have the pleasure of conquerors without the pains of soldiers. Let us sit on sofas and be a hardy race. Thus, in religion and morals, the decadent mystics say, Let us have the fragrance of sacred purity without the sorrows of self-restraint. Let us sing hymns alternatively, alternatively to the Virgin and Priapus. Thus, in love, the free lovers say, Let us have the splendor of offering ourselves without the peril of committing ourselves. Let us see whether one cannot commit suicide an unlimited number of times. Emphatically, it will not work. There are thrilling moments, doubtless, for the spectator, the amateur, and the aesthete. But there is one thrill that is known only to the soldier who fights for his own flag, to the ascetic who starves himself for his own illumination, to the lover who makes finally his own choice. And it is this transfiguring self-discipline that makes the vow a truly sane thing. It must have satisfied even the giant hunger of the soul of a lover or a poet to know that in the consequence of some one instant of decision, that strange chain would hang for centuries in the Alps among the silences of stars and snows. All around us is the city of small sins, abounding in backways and retreats. But surely, sooner or later, the towering flame will rise from the harbor announcing that the reign of the cowards is over and a man is burning his ships.'